You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, good morning, everyone. What a joyous morning. If you are a kindergartner or first grader, you are welcome to go to Bible study with the Bowen family. So kindergartner, first graders, welcome to head on and time with the word. And for the rest of you, let me invite you to turn to the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter one, we're going to be in verse 57 through 80 this morning. And if this is your first time here with us this morning, we are so glad you're here. Welcome. My name is Justin. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. And uh, it's just been a, such a joyous morning giving thanks to God for his grace and for the wondrous ways in which he is working. And so right now as a church, uh, we are going through kind of the opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke, kind of called the, the birth narrative chapters of Luke's Gospel, as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, because believe it or not, Christmas is almost here. And so we are going to look at Luke chapter 1, 57 through 80. This is where we find ourselves this morning. And I'm going to read God's word and pray, and then we'll, we'll see what God has to instruct us this morning from his word. So Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. When was the last time you saw a sunrise? Of course, we see it every day, but how many times do you pay attention to it? How many times have you watched it carefully, intently, sitting on the porch, gazing over the horizon? Because I think few sights rival the majestic glow that happens just before the dawn. So when you sit for a while and you get to actually watch the sunrise, you have a good view of the horizon, you get to notice and behold the the splashing colors of orange and red and yellow as they begin to creep into the darkness right before the sun bursts over the edge of the horizon. And when you watch the sunrise, you get to see the, the particles of light begin to pierce the darkness as it begins to cower back into the shadows. And before long... The sun is up, and the full radiance of its light emerges and and fills the earth with the beam of its warmth and the rays of its illumination. So the Bible says that Jesus is the light of the world. His arrival is its own sort of sunrise, one with far more beauty and radiance than that ball of gas floating in the sky in our solar system. You see, the incarnation, Jesus' enfleshment, the Son's incarnation and dwelling among us, it's its own type of sunrise because the righteous Son's arrival into our world begins to, to peel back the darkness of this fallen world and begins to bring glory and light to those who dwell within it. You see, as humanity, you and I, as we rummage in spiritual blindness, Jesus' arrival makes clear not only God's redemptive plan, but also God's glory. And with the light of the world, Jesus, we receive not only a a clearer vision of God, but we also begin to see God's purpose for our world, God's purpose for your life, for, for my life, as we begin to understand how God is graciously entering into the world in order to save the world. So at Christmas, we remember how God provides light to those who dwell in darkness. To those who lack purpose, God gives purpose. To those under the black judgment of sin, God gives salvation. And to those in the shivering cold of bitter isolation, God gives the warmth of his divine love. That's what we remember at Christmas. So thus the the rising of the sun of righteousness ought to produce wonder in our hearts and ought to cause us to to tremble in awe as we bask in the glory of the sun's incarnation this Christmas season. So as we look at Luke chapter 1, verse 57 through 80, Luke recounts the events at John's birth and his presentation on the eighth day. And so the naming of John the Baptist brings brings about the return of Zechariah's speech. Remember, he was mute, which which leads to this priest giving a, a prophecy about his newborn son, but also the Lord in which his newborn son was to prepare the way. And he describes the coming of the Lord as a sunrise, a sunrise. And so if Jesus, the Christ, is the rising sun, 
John the Baptist is the glimmer just before the dawn. So here's the the sermon summary, if you want to write it down. John is the glow before the sunrise of Christ, who illuminates the darkness and guides us into peace. So John is the glow just before the sunrise, just before the, the sun comes up on the horizon, and this Christ illuminates the darkness, and he guides us into peace. So this whole passage, as we consider it, one of the things we ought to ask as we study God's word is, is what sort of response is the author expecting us to have? And it's pretty clear as we read this section of, of Luke, as we read about Zechariah, his prophecy, the naming of John, it's pretty clear that Luke wants us to feel awe and wonder. Awe and wonder. And I hope that's the response we will have collectively together this morning as we encounter God through his word. So first, I want to highlight for us the wonder of God's prophet. The wonder of God's prophet. So again, if you have been here throughout this little series through the opening of Luke's gospel, you remember when we talked at the beginning of the chapter, beginning of chapter one, the angel Gabriel first announced the birth of John to Zechariah in the temple. Zechariah didn't respond with excitement or enthusiasm, but he responded with suspicion and disbelief, with doubts, because his wife was well past her childbearing years. She was supposedly thought barren. They didn't have any kids. They didn't think it was possible. And so Zechariah responded with disbelief, and so Gabriel, the angel, stiffened Zechariah's tongue and made him mute. So Zechariah has gone these nine months without speaking to anyone. Complete silence. And eventually, Elizabeth did give birth to her son. And according to the custom, here we see in the passage, they present him on the eighth day for circumcision. And that was when the parents typically unveiled the the name of their child publicly. And so when the news of the baby's birth came, everybody was really excited. Elizabeth had finally had a child in her old age. And so the neighbors and relatives rejoiced that Elizabeth, who was long thought barren, now had a baby of her own, a son. What a wondrous gift from the Lord. And so usually, when a family in the first century named their firstborn son, they would give him a family name. That's a common practice today, isn't it? A family name. And after all, this is most likely their only child, right? They've waited years. So they've got to make this name count, right? They might not have another opportunity, to name a kid after the family. So, so typically, the name was often taken after the father. So as they're there at the circumcision, as everybody's celebrating with Elizabeth and, and awing over the baby, they're expecting the baby's boy, boy's name to be announced to be Zechariah. However, Elizabeth insists that the name of the baby is not Zechariah. The name of the baby is John, the name that was given by the angel to Zechariah. So even though Zechariah couldn't speak, he had somehow communicated to his wife the baby's name given by the angel. And so others, though, there began to really question, what is, what is Elizabeth doing here? Why is she naming the baby John? After all, no one in their family had that name. It's an unusual name. It wasn't a name in their, in their lineage. So the people wondered if Elizabeth was taking advantage of Zechariah's disability and naming the baby a name that the father didn't approve of. And so they turn turn to Zechariah, and they say, Zechariah, are you okay with this name? 
Is she making a mistake? And so they begin to make motion to him, they said. And the text says they made signs to him, which might indicate that Zechariah might not have only been mute, but he might have also been deaf as they're making signs, trying to get his attention and communicate with him in some ways. So Zechariah took a tablet and he wrote the baby's name clear for all. His name is John. His name is John. And in response to this, the crowd was filled with wonder. And that wonder only increased as Zechariah's tongue loosed and as he began to speak and prophesy blessings to the Lord. You see, it's interesting to watch Zechariah's story as we've gone through this opening chapter, isn't it? Because he was initially, he had unbelief that God could do this, that God was going to give him this baby, that the Lord was coming and that his son would prepare the way, just as the angel Gabriel said. And so Zechariah's initial unbelief has now gestated over these last nine months to belief, to trust in the Lord. And so during these long nine months of silence, he became convinced, convinced of the angel's announcements. He believed in the promise of this baby and of the Lord Jesus Christ who would come. You see, Zechariah believed that his son, John, would be a prophet, one who would bring spiritual renewal to God's people, one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. And so Zechariah's insistence on calling the child John reveals that Zechariah has had a change of heart over these last nine months. Zechariah's suspicion has turned to faith. So to the watching crowd, those that were there on that circumcision day, they they were filled with wonderment, the text says. From the baby's name to Zechariah's all of a sudden miraculous recovery of his speech, all of this was raising a lot of questions in their minds. In fact, it was the talk of the town. Everybody was talking and and saying, did you hear what happened to Zechariah? Did you hear what they named the baby? Did you you hear how his speech came back? And so people all around began to, to happen, but what The question that dominated them, the question that rested their hearts, Luke tells us what it was. What then will this child be? Something special going on here, something unusual from the child's name to the circumstances of his birth to the healing and the prophecy of his father. All of this communicated that there was some sort of special divine purpose for this baby that they did not yet understand. They just knew clearly the hand of the Lord was on this baby And they didn't know what it meant. What would be this baby's purpose? What would be the Lord's plan for little John's life? What is the Lord doing in their midst in all this situation? And so these were questions the crowd asked, but the crowd didn't know the answer to them. God had given them a prophet. That's what was happening. A prophet. John the Baptist would grow. He would be filled with the spirit. He would be teaching and preaching the way of repentance in anticipation of the Christ. And so Zechariah would prophesy about about John's role. Look down in verse 76 of the text here, right? And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways. So the baby John grew into a child, and he stayed in the wilderness, the text says, until the day of his public ministry until it began. So the people wondered at all this, at Zechariah and Elizabeth's baby. And so even though the crowd didn't know what was going on, what God was doing, Zechariah and Elizabeth did. They knew the identity of their, their child as a prophet, and they knew the wondrous role that their prophet, John, would play in God's redemptive plan. And that leads us to consider, secondly, the wonder 
of God's plan. Because at this event, Zechariah begins to prophesy. He begins to, to bless the Lord. All of this brought such great joy to Zechariah's heart that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he began to prophesy about this baby and about God's working in the world. And so Zechariah's words here are, are poetic. And they express the, the wonder in his heart. The beauty of God's redemptive plan that was now coming into action and it was coming into action through his son, John the Baptist, preparing the way for the Messiah. And so as Zechariah understands all this through the help of the Holy Spirit, Zechariah begins to reflect here in the text on the precious promises God had made to Israel and promises that, that Zechariah and his people that they had waited so long for. So Zechariah begins to bless the Lord and to, to praise God for his faithfulness. Look at what, what Zechariah says in verse 68. Zechariah blesses the Lord. Why? Because he has visited and redeemed his people. Visited and redeemed. You see, the God of Israel would not abandon his people, but instead the, the God of Israel would draw near and visit with his people, providing the redemption that they need and the liberation that they desired from their enemies. So Zechariah knows that the Christ is coming. The Messiah is on his mind, even as he thinks about his own son, John. And so as the Christ, the son of Mary, he describes this Jesus as the, the horn of salvation. The Lord has raised up within the house of his servant, David. So as we think about God's plan and we wonder at the story of redemption, we remember how God has visited us and redeemed us visited and redeemed. He says, Christ visits us. He becomes one of us and he draws near to us. All right. What's one of the names given to Jesus? Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the language of God visiting his people actually harkens back to the people's slavery in the land of Egypt back in the book of Exodus. So when God sends Moses to the people in their slavery, we're told in Exodus chapter 4, verse 31, here's what it says. And the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction. They bowed their heads and worshiped. The language of visit, the Lord visiting his people in the midst of their affliction. And so as Zechariah is blessing the Lord, he, he's praising God for a, a new exodus that is coming. God has seen the affliction of his people. God has given them their, his attention, his focus, his concern. And in the Lord, in the Messiah, in Christ Jesus, God is visiting his people again. So it, it's interesting. Typically when a natural disaster strikes in our world, presidents make a trip to the disaster site as a gesture of sympathy and compassion and support for those in suffering. And so the media, of course, when this happens, they turn their cameras, they snap shots of political leaders who are supporting the afflicted. And of course, there's a lot of political pressure for presidents to do these sorts of things, aren't they? Whether they really want to or not. After all, they've got to keep up appearances. They've got to boost their popular opinion. They've got to do anything possible to make sure they're not jeopardizing their reelection, right? So though, so we don't know anything about any of these men's hearts or ladies' hearts, right, about the, the sorts of visits that they make, but we're not naive. We know that such gestures are often used as political pageantry for reelection photo ops. 
But similarly, God visits his people in their affliction, in their suffering. However, what makes God's visit to his people so wondrous is that he does not do so out of any political pretenses. After all, Jesus is never up for re-election. He's the king. And so when Jesus visits, he sees his people. He sees their needs. And he meets those needs. Why? Because he cares. Because he loves. God doesn't stand back in the distance and and watch the suffering and and pain of the world from the ivory tower of heaven, though he certainly has the prerogative to do so. Rather, the arrival of Jesus Christ into the world shows that God leaves the the perfection of his heavenly home in, in heaven on his throne. And in the Son, Jesus, God visits us. He comes to us. He draws near to us in our affliction. And what makes the son's visit so remarkable is the permanence of his visit. You see, when politicians make such a visit, they they fly in and then they fly out just a couple days later. It's temporary. And then they go back to business as usual. But when Jesus comes, he condescends himself. He makes himself low permanently by becoming one of us. So in the incarnation, Jesus permanently joined his deity to his humanity. And so when Jesus visits us, when he comes to us in the person of Jesus, he's not making some kind of grand gesture, but in love, he identifies with us. He is our brother and he devotes our, himself fully and wholly to our needs because Zechariah says he visits us to redeem us. And yes, redemption is what you most desperately need. This is God's wondrous plan that Christ is the horn of salvation, that Jesus is the power of God's liberation and deliverance from our enemies. And all of this is in fulfillment to exactly what God said he would do. Look at what Zechariah says in verse 70. This is just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. Just as God said. Just as God said he would do. God will save his people from their enemies Everyone that would hate us and devour us, God will liberate, right? Instead, God is going to remember his covenant with Israel, his covenant with Abraham, and God is now blessing the world through his Messiah. And Jesus will deliver his people from the hand of their enemies. You see, most of Israel, including the disciples for a good long while, they thought the deliverance that the Messiah would bring was a political liberation. They believed that the Messiah would liberate them from the oppression, oppressive rule of the Romans, that the Messiah would reestablish a Davidic dynasty that would push back the pagan Roman empire. And though Christ will establish a kingdom at the end of the age here on this earth, Jesus's primary purpose in his first coming wasn't to, to liberate us from rule of the Romans but he's came to liberate us from a spiritual enemy, the enslavement and condemnation wrought by our sin. You see, Jesus has come to vanquish the foe of death. That's why he came. 
You see, sin was not only a more vicious foe than the Romans, but it was actually far more difficult to slay. How do you defeat death? After all, if Jesus just came to, to overthrow Rome, Jesus tells us, right? He could have called down legions of angels to, to crush the armies of Rome. But that's not why Jesus came. He came to fight a far more difficult and pernicious enemy. How can the infection of sin, how can the wrath that it brings upon us, how can that be remedied? Who can provide us with that sort of liberation, that sort of redemption? And how would that even happen? You see, the answer, of course, is the cross of Christ. That the Messiah's victory over our enemies would come from his crushing that Jesus's great battle meant his surrender and that it's only through the blood-stained anguish of his crucified death that God would atone for sin. Only through the blood of Jesus could the filthiness of our wretchedness be cleansed and only through the, the death of Christ could the beast of death be slayed once and for all. Yes, the Christ does deliver us from the hand of our enemies, but Jesus took on enemies we did not know could be taken on. This is why he came, and he brought about their defeat. The defeat of sin, the defeat of death, he brought it all about in a way that no one was anticipating and no one expected. Even John the Baptist would begin to have his wonderment a little bit when he's in prison, about to be beheaded, and he's sending a message to Jesus, are you the one? Because Jesus was the Messiah that no one expected. But Jesus brought about the defeat of these enemies in a way no one anticipated. Because the humble incarnate Christ was crushed for our sins and then raised for our justification. You see, the horrific death and the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the culmination of all of God's promises. Every single one of them finds their yes and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the certainty of our hope, and he is the redemption of all who might believe and trust in him. You see, it's interesting, right? God's purpose in the New Testament is not different from his purpose in the Old Testament. God's intention and plan was always to redeem a people for his own possession, to make them holy and righteous for his glory. Indeed, that was Israel's purpose, even though they recurringly failed. And why did they fail? Well, it wasn't because of the might of the Assyrians or the Babylonians, but it was because of their unbelief, because of their rebellion against the Lord their God in their hearts. So Jesus' coming comes to deal with Israel's true problem. And it's not just Israel's problem. This is your problem. This is my problem. The problem of every human being. It's our sinful and hard rebellious hearts. But yet God's grace in Jesus delivers us out of the judgment of sin so that we might serve the Lord and dwell with him. Look at what Zechariah prophesies in verse 74 and verse 75, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You see, Jesus visits us and he redeems us that we might serve him all our days. Dwelling with the Lord in holiness and righteousness for all of eternity. That's God's plan. 
that Christ visits us to bring us near to God. And so Jesus cleanses us, he justifies us, he makes us holy as he is holy. And so you see, Zechariah's prophecy helps us understand the, the scope and wonders of God's redemptive plan. And I think we as Christians, we think so small about our lives and about God's working in it. We fail to understand the scope. You see, at Christmas time, I think people begin to lose the, the forest for the trees. Because at Christmas, we can focus on the, on the quaintness of Jesus' birth, can't we? The Christmas story. We, we talk about the heavenly hosts. We talk about the animals and draw pictures of them and nativity scenes. And, and yet, in, in the humble recounting of the Christmas story, we will lose its meaning if we fail to see how it fits within the grand scope of God's working in the plan of redemption. You see, Christmas isn't just about a, a cute little baby's birth, but rather Christmas is about God visiting us in the person of Christ and redeeming us by becoming one of us, taking on the fullness of our humanity so that he alone might be the perfect and blameless substitute and sacrifice for our sins. This is why he came. And the sacrifice of Christ has its ultimate purpose in the glory of God, that we might serve him without fear, serve him in holiness and righteousness all of, God, all of our days. This is the, the telos, the end goal of the point of God's plan of redemption, that Christ might be exalted as he redeems us and gathers us and sanctifies us and protects us and brings us into his kingdom. So as we consider, as Zechariah is doing here, God's wondrous plan of redemption, may we pause and all and have wonder over it, and may we see that it finds all of its culmination in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads thirdly to the wonder of God's Son. The wonder of God's Son. And it is that wonder of God's Son that leads Zechariah to turn his blessing here into prophecy. And so if you look at verse 76, Zechariah begins to explicitly prophesy about John's purpose and the purpose of the one to whom he will prepare the way. So he talks about how John will be a prophet of the Most High. John will prepare the way for this promised Messiah. He is the forerunner. And Zechariah's son will, will make straight the path of the Lord and he will make the people's hearts ready to receive him and he will give knowledge of salvation to his people. This is what Zechariah is prophesying over his son and yet John's coming and purpose is in itself an act of God's tender mercy. Look at verse 78. It's an act of tender mercy, forgiveness of God preparing his people here. John will play a vital role in God's plan of redemption but yet he must decrease so that Christ may increase. John baptized with water, but Jesus, the Messiah, will baptize in the Holy Spirit. You see, John is just the glow before the dawn, the first light that breaks the horizon to prepare the way for the sun to rise. And as Zechariah prophesies over John's mission, he turns his attention in verse 78 and verse 79. He turns to the, the purpose of the Messiah. Look at what he says. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
See, the world is a, a broken place. We just sang about it, didn't we? Every day, news of violence and corruption and assault and depravity blast upon our screens. And the wretchedness of the world is more visible today than ever. And, but even still, even through the ubiquitous use of video and people capturing all these terrible things, much of human filth remains locked behind closed doors. In the cracks and crevices of civilization, blissfully unaware of the extent of its corruption. See, Zechariah says, we sit in darkness. We have made our home in the shadow of death and our rebellion and treachery against the Lord has unleashed a torrent of evil undeterred from its destructive flow. However, the vial of sin is not just in society. The vial of sin is in your heart. It lurks within like a poison, tainting, numbing, and killing your soul. And the black spot of sin, it sticks upon your heart and there is no amount of self-washing that will remove away that stain. Our hearts are covered in the shroud of darkness and that darkness suffocates us all. Sin, like the blackness of night, conceals the extent of our wretchedness. Sin disorients us. It terrifies us. And yet, apart from God's intervention, this is how we dwell. In this unceasing night, an eternal midnight, an infinite blackness. But yet, by God's tender mercy, he has caused the sun to rise. As the beams of his glory peek over the horizon, he will visit us. He will not abandon us in the chaos that we have unleashed and in the sufferings that we have deserved. Instead, the sun will rise and the rays of Christ's righteousness will shine forth in the world and we will behold his beauty. Like the soft amber hue that overtakes the sky, so will our hearts be overtaken by the glory of Christ Jesus. That Christ's birth is an invasion of grace upon the shadows of death. The sunrise will visit us from on high. The Lord has come, and in all of his glory and radiance, he gives light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadows of death. So, oh, you who sit in darkness this morning, whose eyes stay stubbornly closed, oblivious to the light of the world who has come. May God grant you by his grace this morning sight to behold the splendor of this Jesus. For the sun has risen. The Lord has visited us in our affliction. He has come born of the virgin and he has died on the cross and he has raised again on the third day. And so may the Lord shine his grace upon you today, not only in exposing your need and exposing the depths of your sin, but also as you ponder and, and wonder at God's loving kindness to you. For Christ Jesus has come to guide our feet into the path, into the way of peace. You see, the light of God's son shows us a better way than which you and I have been living shows us the way of grace. And Jesus beckons us all, come and follow him to cast aside all that we know, all that we've lived for, all that we have cherished, all that we have thought we knew, and to abandon ourselves so that we might follow in his way, following in the way of peace. Because following the Lord Jesus brings peace. 
peace between God and man. He is that mediator making peace by the blood of his cross. And in right relationship with God, we will also see the reign of Christ's peace begin to spread upon the earth as it begins in our hearts. So the question I ask is, have you beheld the light of God's son? Have you beheld it? Have you seen the the beauty of the son of righteousness come across the horizon as God's grace has illuminated your heart? Is your soul transfixed by a vision for God's glory? Has, Has your soul been seized with his beauty and struck with awe over his holiness? Has the spirit compelled you to follow in the footsteps of your savior, to pick up your feet and follow him on the way to peace? Have you left the shadow of your own death and has God brought you? into the life and light of his son. You see, you can attend church your whole life. You can hear the gospel repeatedly and yet still be blind. This sort of faith that we're talking about this morning, type of faith that saves, this isn't some regurgitation of facts about Jesus, but this is an experience of having your darkened heart swallowed up with the illumination of divine light. So listen carefully this morning. I'm not asking if you understand. I'm asking, do you see? Do you see? As you behold Christ and his coming and his purpose, over these truths we've expounded from this text, does your heart burst forth in wonder and awe? Brothers and sisters, the sun is risen. He has come. And may we wonder that this prophet John who has prepared the way for the Messiah, may we wonder at the mystery of God's redemptive plan unfolding in the arrival of Christ and as God visits us and redeems us. But most of all, may we wonder today at God's son who is the sunrise upon the darkness of this world in our hearts. And as we consider his glory, as we consider his beauty, may our hearts be moved stirred to trust him, to love him, to enjoy him, and to worship him. And so if God has given you this sight this morning to see God's glory, I pray that you would humble yourself and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you've lived in darkness for so long, when the light comes on in your heart, it can be a little bit disorienting until your your vision clears, but perhaps today God's light has pierced your darkened heart. Praise the Lord. What you're experiencing right now is called the new birth. God giving spiritual sight to your soul. God enabling you to behold the glory of his son. And so I implore you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, call out in faith today for him to save. And he will. And if you are a Christian, if you have seen the glory of Christ, may the the wonderment and joy of when we first believed in Jesus only increase in our hearts as we know him with greater depth. So this Christmas, may we not forget the wondrous truths we've uncovered this morning. The sun is risen. And so bask in the warmth of his love as you worship him this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful, Lord, that in your infinite wisdom, you have chosen to save sinners like us, lost in the darkness, howling in fear and in the wretchedness and filth of our own depravity. But Lord, you have visited us. You have sent your son into this world to become one of us, that he might die for us, 
so that he might bring us into the way of your peace, Lord, as he vanquishes every foe, the greatest of which being sin and death itself. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, that, Lord, as we've expounded upon your word, their hearts might be provoked to deeper awe, deeper worship, deeper joy, deeper enjoyment of your wondrous son, Jesus Christ. But, Lord, I do pray, Lord, who's, for those whose souls might just now be becoming awakened as the sun is beginning to rise in their hearts. Lord, I pray, Lord, that in the anxiety of their sinfulness, Lord, that they would come and trust in Jesus. They would repent and put their faith in Jesus as their Savior. God, we love you. We are so amazed at your grace. And Father, we worship you now, praising you for your wondrous redemptive plan culminated in the birth of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.